Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Come cheer up, my lads, tis to glory we steer, to add something more to this wonderful year. To honour we call you, as free men, not slaves, for who are so free as the sons of the waves? Heart of oak are our ships, jolly tars are our men, we always are ready, steady boys, steady, we'll fight and we'll conquer again and again. We ne'er see our foes, but we wish them to stay, they never see us, but they wish us away. If they run, why, we follow and run them ashore. For if they won't fight us, what can we do more? So Tom Holland, that's uh, Heart of Oak, written in 1759 after the Battle of Quiberon Bay and sung a few hours aboard the the Victory before the Great Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. So one of the great anthems of the Royal Navy. And you have wanted to do a podcast about Trafalgar since we started The Rest is History, haven't you? I have. And this is the perfect week to be doing it because uh, Friday, the 21st of October is Trafalgar Day, the day on which the battle was actually fought. So um, we were originally going to do one episode, weren't we? We were. On, on Trafalgar. Uh, and I went away on holiday and <laughs> I started reading about it and I read about it and I read about it and I read about it. And I sent you a text saying, I think we should do two episodes. Well, yeah. we've now we're now going to be doing three episodes. So we're going to talk about today, a world at war, the the background to this great battle, Napoleon against Nelson, France against Britain, the elephant against the whale, this great (laughs) clash. Uh, Next time we will look at the build up to the battle. And then on Friday, the 21st of October, Trafalgar Day, we will look at the actual battle itself. And um, Dominic, I have gone on record, haven't I, as saying that I'm not particularly interested in rope or ships or mizzen masts or anything like that. Right, because this is in the context of the novels of Patrick O'Brien that you refuse to read. I now want to recant. So, yeah, I want to recant. recanting. I th- oh, what a moment. I, th- I think this is an absolutely thrilling story 
I think it, I think it's the great epic of British history, actually. And when yeah. I say epic, I mean in the sense that the Homeric sense. Uh, Nelson is a kind of a Dissian figure, endlessly sweeping the seas. He's on the sea at two years at a time. And then at Trafalgar, the Byron called him Britannia's god of war. He's a kind of great agent of annihilation, a kind of terrifying figure, really, who dies at the moment of his triumph, becomes the great martyr of the navy. Well, that obviously, we'll, we'll come to that. But that martyrdom is, is absolutely central to the story. It's, it's an astonishing story. And it's a story in which the stakes could not be higher. For Britain, it's about national survival. And for France, it's about the opportunity to knock Britain out permanently and thereby yeah. secure a permanent French supremacy over Europe. So huge, huge stakes. But there is a debate about Trafalgar and, and how decisive it actually is. So there are historians who say it didn't really change anything particularly. What's your view on that? Because I actually think that it's probably the most decisive battle of the 19th century for reasons that we'll come to in due course. Yeah, I, I probably agree with you, Tom. I think um, there are some battles that, that do feel like decisive showdowns or turning points. So, I mean, naval battles, you know, the Battle of Actium maybe or the Battle of Midway or something. And I think uh, Trafalgar is, is obviously in the in the very top rank of those because I think what it does, I mean, we'll come on to talk about the geopolitical ramifications later, but I think what Trafalgar does is it ultimately, you could argue, it makes it impossible for the French to win, to knock Britain out of the Napoleonic Wars. It had Trafalgar gone otherwise had the French landed in Britain and maybe maybe not invaded, but maybe smashed up Britain's dockyards, smashed up London and so on, made it impossible for Britain to continue to fight at sea. That would have had enormous ramifications for the war in Europe, but also in the long term, over the course of the 19th century, for the imperial balance of power. Yeah. And I would say Trafalgar ensures that Britain will be the world's largest commercial and imperial power for the next 100 years or so. Absolutely. And I think so. there's a paradox there, which is that perhaps it's less decisive as a battle in the Napoleonic Wars than it is as a battle in the broad context of the, the 19th century, which is yeah. kind of you know, a seeming paradox that perhaps we can, we can look at when we actually come to the, the battle itself. But just to, um, just to jump in, though, Tom, I agree with you about the Homeric epic. And I think the, the fact that the, the figure at the centre of the, of the struggle I mean, it's that strange thing, isn't it, where one, there are two figures who everybody knows, Nelson and Napoleon. Napoleon is never there, but he hangs, his shadow hangs over the whole story. Yeah. But Nelson is there in a very intimate kind of way on the deck of the victory, risking his life. And of course, it's the fact that he dies in the moment of apotheosis that turns this into more than just an ordinary battle. It turns it into a an absolute, I, I hate to use the word because it's such a terrible cliche, but it turns it into, dare I say, an iconic moment in British national history. But there's one other thing I think makes Trafalgar so interesting. And I know at this point you'll you're roll your eyes because you're terrified that I'm going to start talking about 17th century finance. But I think Trafalgar is the culmination of all kinds of political, financial, economic, cultural processes that have been working themselves out for more than 100 years. And that, that it's a brilliant window, actually, into talking about Britain as a state since its creation. Absolutely. Well, so Andrew Lambert, great naval historian, biographer of, of Nelson, describes the Royal Navy as the most successful fighting service the world had ever seen. Adam Nicholson, who wrote a, a brilliant book, Men of Honour, about Trafalgar, calls it the most effective maritime killing machine in the world. And I think that the Royal Navy obviously lies at the heart of the story. And as you say, it's I think we're so familiar with the idea of Britannia ruling the waves, the idea that Britain was a naval power, that it's good to look at how that came about, because actually there was nothing inevitable about it for centuries yeah. and centuries. Britain 
did not rule the waves. I mean, it was it was hopeless <laughs> when it came to kind of controlling its own waters, let alone the waters of Europe and the world beyond. And the story of how that happens is obviously an absolutely fundamental part of, of Trafalgar and indeed the entire Napoleonic conflict. But I think before we get to the Royal Navy and, um, and indeed the French and Spanish fleets that f- fight on the other side at Trafalgar, we should just set the scene in the, the geopolitics of what's going on. In So 1805 is the year... I suppose it ranks like 1588, the year of the Spanish Armada, uh, 1940, the year of the Battle of Britain, as a year when Britain faces invasion by a foreign force. Uh, the question of, of, of how credible a threat that actually was is something that we'll come to in due course. But that is part of the mythology, isn't it? That 1805, Napoleon could have invaded Britain. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to give people a sense of the sort of the lie of the land, Britain and France have fought something like seven major wars i think since the 1690s or so yeah so in, so in france they call it the second hundred years war so yeah. the, the first hundred years war in the middle ages but this is a kind of ongoing process of conflicts that just run and run and run and they are increasingly aren't they world wars so they're wars that take place in multiple theaters you know thousands of miles apart uh, and and very often very largely kind of i mean there's there are elements on land but the navy is always hugely important and this is the latest one and it's been raging since the early 1790s um it's sort of off and on there are sort of stop start but i think you can see it all as one kind of continuous campaign ultimately can't you and britain is constantly trying to enlist to do what it's always done yeah. trying to enlist continental coalitions against napoleon because one of the strange things about britain is um britain is a world power but it, but militarily in, on land it is not really much of a yeah it is a pygmy because uh, for reasons we'll go on to discuss britain has always invested in its navy rather than its army so that means britain needs allies but it also needs to uphold its side of the bargain which is to kind of you know maintain its naval supremacy napoleon so he faces the same strategic dilemma that, that successive French administrations have faced. They've always struggled to raise enough money to fight on land and at sea. So France is always ending these wars, whatever the result of the war, France is always ending these wars bankrupt. But Napoleon, because he's, I mean, he's, he's ruthless. He's literally, I mean, he's rapacious. He plunders countries he occupies. He poses a, a kind of threat to Britain, I would say, Tom that no previous French administration has ever posed. Don't you, don't, wouldn't you agree? This is, a, this is a kind of an existential challenge on a scale that goes beyond the challenges of, I don't know, the, 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 well, certainly the Nine Years' War, the War of the Spanish Succession, or some of these previous conflicts. Absolutely. Because what, and it's not just Napoleon, it's, it's the Revolutionary Wars as well. What the French Revolution does is to put the whole of the French patrie into arms. So it's this, this idea of total war, is born with the French Revolution. And it takes the British, I think, a few years to appreciate what they're up against. I mean, it takes all the kind of Ancien Régime uh, nations of Europe time to realise what has been born in France. And also quickly, a quick point, Tom, a really important point. France is a, is a Leviathan. Much larger population, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's got something like 27 million people Britain's got about 11, is it? 11 million. Yeah. So, I mean, now we think of Brit- France and Britain as equivalent. They are not equivalent in population. And, you know, obviously that suggests an economic potential um, at, the, at the dawn of the 19th century. So for Britain, this is something of an uphill struggle. Yes. Well, well so, so Britain, when the revolutionary wars break out in 1793, does what Britain has always done throughout the 18th century, which is essentially to pay 
continental allies to take on the French army. And this, you know, it's, it's kind of diplomacy. It's, uh, you know, all those board games where you have different yeah. players and you're all kind of teaming up with one another and stabbing each other in the back. Britain's always been very good at that. But the problem is, is that the, the, the sheer scale of the armies that the French revolutionary state can command are so enormous and the passions that have been unleashed are so intense that they kind of sweep away the Austrians and the Prussians and everybody. And Britain finds herself to her consternation, basically facing a a continent that where there are no allies to be had. And so therefore her only option, if she is to train her independence is to rely on the Navy and to basically hope that something will turn up process of wars throughout the, the 1790s, culminating the Peace of Amiens in 1801. But everyone knows this is basically kind of half time, isn't it? Yeah. And Britain's sense that France now under Napoleon is too restless, too dangerous, too much of a threat is focused by the refusal of Britain to return the island of Malta that Napoleon had seized from the, the Knights of Malta, this kind of ancient chivalric order. The British had then taken in turn. And under the terms of the Treaty of Amiens, Britain was going to return, you know, was going to give Malta up. But she refuses to do that because by now, Britain's naval power means that it's not just enough to have forces in the Channel or even in the Atlantic, but it has to be in the Mediterranean as well. Yeah. And so therefore, they're not going to do it. And that is what precipitates the return to war. Britain, under the governance of Pitt, Pitt the Younger, Pitt the Younger. prime minister, he is returning to a kind of more traditional British policy. He is trying to get Austria, Russia on board. Napoleon realizes that you know he can knock Austria or Russia out easily. He has the, the manpower to do that. He has the military genius to do that. He has the resources to do that. But that if he's going to win the war, he has to knock Britain out. And so that by 1805 is the situation. Yeah. That is the strategic decision that Napoleon has arrived at, that he has to get troops across the channel to Britain. And that is essentially the state of play. And it's Napoleon himself who comes up with this phrase, you know, describing uh, the, the war between France and Britain as the war between an elephant and a whale. But of course, another very, very popular analogy is the war between Rome, the military power, and Carthage, this commercial mercantilist naval power that yeah. ends up being defeated. Well, Napoleon's already modelling himself on the on a Roman emperor, isn't he? Yes. I mean, and he's got all the trappings. Well, he is an emperor, the, isn't he? He's previously been the first consul and now he's the yeah that emperor exactly so that that suits him so just on napoleon and his strategy people often think don't they that in 1805 the french were poised to invade britain and there's the sort of image you know i mean actually we did a podcast tom um very recently which i recommend to the listeners about uh, a history of france in 10 films with muriel zaga uh who was brilliant and at the beginning of that podcast i quoted from russell crowe as jack Aubrey in the film Master and Commander, and he says, do you want a guillotine in Piccadilly? Do you want to have that raggedy-ass Napoleon as your king? And all this stuff. That probably wouldn't have happened, though, would it? Do you think? That's not really Napoleon's plan. I think Napo- Don't you think Napoleon's plan is just to cripple Britain as a naval rival, to smash up its dockyards, all that stuff? That's what Napoleon says, and that's what his marshals uh, in later years say the plan was, that it wasn't to occupy Britain, it was to destroy its naval resources. And that is due to, you know, that reflects the fact that Napoleon understands that what enables Britain to withstand him is the incredible resources that over the course of 150 years, the Royal Navy has built up and has has made the Royal Navy into into this kind of, this killing machine, uh, a force that is something by the standards of the age, something new. I mean, um, something radical, lethal, and, and potentially globe straddling. Yes, um, absolutely, absolutely. France c- 
cannot afford to invest in the fleet in the, to the same degree that Britain does because it has obviously land borders that Britain, you know, it's it's now the United Kingdom of Great Britain doesn't have. Yeah. So the French have to invest in their military. The British, as you've said, they don't have armed forces that are capable of, of facing up to this. They've periodically kind of land troops in the Netherlands or whatever, and they get beaten out. Yeah. And so that means that, that the Royal Navy has, it, it is the only possible way that, that Britain can continue fighting. And that's what makes it so significant. So I, I completely agree that we cannot begin to look or explain the Battle of Trafalgar without looking at the Royal Navy and the kind of the deep history that has led us to this context in 1805, where it is a maritime killing force of an order that has never existed before. Now, I know you have, you're have you very, very excited about tracing the origins of this back to, <laughs> oh, back to Cromwell so and Peeps. <laughs> yeah. So, so you sent me a whole load of notes. It's full of stuff about the Battle of Lowestoft against the that Dutch in the 1660s. And- These are complete lies. I don't know what the Battle of Lowestoft is. But Dominic, I would, I would say that yeah. actually the origins yeah. of, of um, Britain's identification with the Royal Navy goes back even beyond Cromwell. It goes back to, um, to Drake. Not to Alfred the Great, Tom. <laughs> no, not to Alfred the Great, although we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that as well. But, but it's this idea that, um, that kind of exists inchoately in the British imagination. I should probably say the English imagination, because, of course, Drake was an English um, admiral, yeah. that it was Protestant ships that had enabled England under Queen Elizabeth to defy continental and Catholic despotism. Yeah. Uh, and so the Navy is seen as being... Uh, the embodiment of of Protestant liberty against the shadow of, of of continental autocracy, and it's pretty easy when you have that in your imaginings to see Napoleon as standing in the line of descent from Louis the Fourteenth, Philip the Second, whatever. And of course, you know the navy is expensive; it has to be paid for. It's Parliament that votes to pay for it. Lots of people in Parliament know nothing about the navy, but they know they're vaguely in favour of it because it's it's Protestant and it's the embodiment of liberty, unlike armies, which are seen as being sinister, continental, despotic. Exactly. There is a profound distrust in British and, and indeed English and Scottish before that um, history of the idea of a standing army controlled by the king, because that is perceived as the tool of Catholic absolutist monarchs, whereas there's this perception that runs right through the 18th century that a navy almost inherently, and the Royal Navy par excellence uh, um, epitomizes this, a navy is the sort of bulwark of liberty, that free-thinking Protestant men will, will serve on ships, whereas if they're wearing you know, the uniforms of a land army, they are merely the slaves of a despot. And, and that, I mean, people absolutely, you see that in cartoons, you see that as we'll come on to in songs, in popular culture. I mean, the Navy is embedded in, in Britain's sense of its own identity. You could argue, Tom, we'll come on to this as well, that the Navy is more than anything else, the British institution, because it's obviously its great rise really coincides with the invention of Great Britain as a, as a sovereign country. But I think you could go even further than that and say that in a way, the Royal Navy isn't just a, a reflection of modern Britain. It helps to create it. Yeah, agreed. Because the simple fact, it, it's unbelievably expensive. So it's equivalent to about 
a third of the British government's total annual expenditure. I mean, that yeah. is an enormous amount of money. And to raise that money, you need the kind of the frameworks of fiscal responsibility that the well, current British government uh, stands heir to. So, <laughs> so, so I find good. it quite very depressing good. reading about, you know, how in the 18th century... You don't trust Liz Truss with the Royal Navy, Tom? <laughs> you know, the national debt and the kind of the tools <laughs> of uh, of borrowing and lending that, um, that the British state creates and and which which essentially provide the kind of you know the foundations for the entire global economic system to this day well quasi quarteng if you're listening (laughs) please start taking notes now but the need to fund the navy is is a crucial part of what enables those frameworks to exist so that so that's why in some ways the battle of trafalgar is the culmination of a story that is a story not just about you know sailors fighting at sea it's a story about finance and it's a story about the, the invention of a modern State. Modern state, I would yes. Say. Now, we should probably take a break, shouldn't we, Tom? And then come back and talk a little bit more about the Navy. Because I have some very interesting naval facts for you, which I think I, can't will, wait. I know you, I think you'll find that very <laughs> exciting. So we shall see you with our naval facts after the break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland, do you know the origins of the phrase a slush fund? Do you have a slush fund personally? Um, I do, because you told me about it yesterday. But I, I will pretend that I, I don't know, Dominic. Tell me what the origins of the phrase slush fund are. So a, a cook on board a Royal Navy ship, he's, he's basically a boiling um, salted meat that they've got this disgusting sounding salted meat. And as the water boils, the fat separates from the meat and it forms this sort of layer of scum. The uh, the cook would ladle that layer off the scum and he would put it, I don't know, in a bucket or something. And, and people called it slush. It was useful because it's fat, so they can use it for waterproofing ropes and they can make candles from it. And the cook is allowed to sell it um, privately and make money from it. It's one of the perks of being a ship's cook. And that, therefore, is called his slush fund. And I think we use that phrase all the time. We don't know where it comes from. And actually, you know what? There are tons of phrases that are like this. So I read a book called Empire of the Deep by Ben Wilson, all about the Royal Navy. And he has this wonderful section where he talks about, you know, if you obviously there are some that are very obvious. So, uh, Tom, on this podcast, sometimes you are all at sea. 
Sometimes I have to say you're sailing very close to the wind. I'm worried, obviously, that you'll walk out and leave me high and dry. But if you don't, then it'll just be plain sailing. And there are some guests to whom we would give a wide berth. There are some guests for whom we'd push the boat out. That's some are loose cannons. Yeah, there are some are loose cannons. Sometimes we have to press gang them into yes. appearing on the rest of history. Sometimes you're in full order, flow. We have to give them a shot across the bows. We do. Sometimes you're in full flow and I have to take the wind out of your sails. Or tell me to pipe down. I tell you to pipe down, exactly. So you pipe, don't you? If people, you, it's, you give an order for men to calm down through the pipes. I mean, some people would say we're just sitting here chewing the fat. <laughs> yes. Okay, so what, Dominic, what is the cut of your jib? That's navel, isn't yeah. it? So a jib is a, um, is a some form of, I think it's some sort of <laughs> sail. I mean, basically, <laughs> I think it's fair to say some listeners, regular listeners will remember <laughs> that we did a podcast about the Portuguese age of exploration. And our explanation for Portuguese naval technology was they had, was it triangular sails? Was that the... Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, but I think what all this tells you and the fact that there are so many of these things, so learning the ropes, hand over fist, hard and fast. Well, okay, so learning the ropes, Dominic. Yeah. Learning the rope. I've gone on record, I'm not interested in rope, and I remain uninterested in rope. And yeah. that is, uh, it, it doesn't matter, I don't need to know about ropes. But the point is, is that British midshipmen did. They did. So it had become a very professional service. And the contrast you'll be delighted to hear is with the French. The French in the French Navy, they weren't interested in learning the ropes. That was seen as de classe. Yeah. They were <laughs> interested well, they were interested in learning abstract principles. I saw that. And you I saw that in your notes that they were <laughs> the French were only only interested in abstract <laughs> nouns. Very like today. Yes, yeah. I thought you'd enjoy that. Whereas um British officers, even if they were quite well born, so one of the sons of George III went to sea as a midshipman. Yes. So where does this come from, Tom? Because the thing is, you mentioned Drake, but even even the generation after Drake, England is not really a naval power at all. And actually, I would say, well, I say this because I've read other people's books. Um, <laughs> would you say that? Yeah. This well, is what your research that. has led but you to. My, my close expertise on the subject <laughs> and my knowledge of triangular sails says to me that actually the real turning point is that it's the middle of the 17th century. It's actually the interregnum. So it's the, the Cromwellian period. And it's competition. It's competition specifically with the Dutch. So what actually happens, and this is a very simplistic way of doing it, of describing it, and sort of naval historians may be tearing their hair out, is that in a way, Britain keeps losing, England keeps losing battles, sea battles to the Dutch. But in the long run, it kind of wins the competition. Because all the time it is losing, the Royal Navy is is improving, is modernizing, is learning from its opponents. So by the 1660, when you have the Restoration, it is already much larger. Cromwell has spent an awful lot of money on the Navy in this sort of competition for trade with Britain's great Protestant commercial rival, which is the Dutch Republic. It has two admirals in particular, so Blake and Monk, who are very much into kind of, we need to be more disciplined. It can't be the sort of shambles that it has been for most of our history. And the government is prepared to to finance that. And that continues. So it's it's a great example, actually, the continuity between the Cromwellian period and the Restoration, because that continues under Charles II. And James James II was Lord High Admiral during the Restoration period. He's very much all about the Navy. So they do two things in particular in the Restoration period. So one is you have peeps and administration, so the creation of a kind of bureaucracy, and the other is professionalization. So it's actually under Charles II that naval lieutenants have to pass an exam. And if you think about the British Army, so right into the 19th century, 
it's still a very amateur um, way of life where you buy your way in. So in the Navy, Charles II describes the Navy as a trade, very telling word. In other words, it's not, you know, it's something you learn a trade and you have to pass an exam to do it. So it's a professional enterprise. And then when you get to the end of the 17th century, William of Orange and Mary and Anne, obviously now you're in competition with the French. So rather than the Dutch, you're now facing the French who are a real, you know, they are the superpower. And the only way um, England and Scotland and then Britain can compete is through finance. So William brings over, you know, these sort of Dutch financial techniques, and now they're being applied on a much grander scale. So the classic one is the Bank of England. The Bank of England is founded in 1694. England is locked in this sort of long struggle against uh, Louis XIV's France. Right away, the Bank of England raises more than a million pounds and an absolutely astronomical sum of money by the standards of the day. And more than half of that, Tom, was spent on the Royal Navy. So finance and kind of naval power were absolutely intertwined. And in fact, even the public are financing the Navy. So from 1714, you as an ordinary punter, you as a sort of spec, a small speculator, you can buy a Navy bill which is traded on the stock exchange, will give you a return of 6% a year. And that presumably is seen as being patriotic, the patriotic option. Absolutely. Absolutely. You think about all the war bonds that, so our American, Australian, Canadian, British listeners, all of these people will remember in the world wars, you would buy war bonds to support the war effort. This is exactly what people are doing at the turn of the 18th century, and it is supporting specifically the Navy. So as we enter the 18th century, Britain has a it has a, a naval bureaucracy. It has the Admiralty Building in Whitehall. You know, offices, people with pieces of paper, and it's also as time goes on, the navy becomes absolutely embedded in Brit- so Britain is created in 1707, and the navy is at the centre of that because that's all we have. We don't really have an arm. I mean, I know there's Marlborough in the Battle of Well, Berlin. so so regiments are obviously drawn from counties or yeah. or regions. They're very localised, whereas the Royal Navy people come from all over the place. Exactly. Exactly. So the anthem, the great anthem that people associate with, apart from God Save the King, the anthem that people associate with this new country, Great Britain, is, of course, Rule Britannia. You know, sung at, Britannia rules the waves. Yeah, Britannia rule the waves. Exactly. Now, that was sung at a... It was a sort of um, a play, an opera, a mask, a musical about Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great. Yeah, about Alfred the Great. Who gets kind of, you know, back projected as the the founder of the Royal Navy. Exactly. uh, Which, of course, he wasn't. No. But this idea, that idea is really important. So in 1740, when the people are watching the Alfred the Great and they're singing Royal Britannia, they are kind of inventing a tradition in which Britain has always been a maritime power and which the Royal Navy of the the mid-18th century is sort of being projected as the culmination of a process that has taken almost a thousand years. I mean, we think of the Navy, I guess, because we're living in the sort of shadow of it. You know, we probably think, and many of the listeners will think of the Navy as an incredibly traditional, old-fashioned institution full of weird rituals and phrases. But in the 18th century, the Royal Navy, I would say, represents the acme of modernity. Completely. With its bureaucracy, with its finance, all those things. Yes. By 1805... The Royal Navy is, I mean, there hasn't been a kind of dramatic change in the way that there is, with, say, with the development of, of steam power. Techniques for, for fighting battles are basically the same as they've been pretty much for 150 years. So, it, so in that sense, nothing radically has changed. In victory, there's been there's 74 gunships, aren't they, that were, they came in from the 1750s. Yes, yes. But, but HMS Victory, Nelson's flagship, yeah. is about 40 years old. 
yeah. at the Battle of Trafalgar. And Nelson himself, who becomes a midshipman before the outbreak of the Revolutionary Wars, lots of the uh, of the admirals who fight in Nelson's navy, the captains have come of age during the uh, the War of American Independence. But essentially, the fighting techniques haven't radically altered. Having said that, however, I think that there are two ways in which the Royal Navy is, as you say, the kind of the embodiment of the future. The first is that although the fundamentals of fighting naval battles and fighting naval campaigns have remained the same, decades and decades of having the Royal Navy at the heart of the British state means that the funding the understanding, the provisioning, the the manning of this force has been unbelievably well streamlined. So in contrast, say, to France, which has these periodic bankruptcies, lacks the kind of bureaucratic infrastructure, lacks the naval dockyards that Britain has. And so it's a much more kind of staccato process. Ships get knocked out, they have to start again almost from scratch. In Britain, there is this kind of continuity of tradition which means that the putting to sea of ships has become something incredibly fluent. And I think the other thing is that over the course of the decades that precede Trafalgar, in all kinds of ways, everything to do with the Navy has been tightened, has been streamlined, has been made more efficient. And in a way, Trafalgar is the ultimate demonstration of the success of that process. Well, I mean, if you think about in the Seven Years' War, Tom, in the Seven Years' War, which is a sort of generation or two earlier, they had started to provision ships with fresh vegetables. I mean, it sounds like such a boring, trivial point. Of course, it's not if you're on board the ship. Um, so they are sending not just sort of carrots and beer and cabbages, but they have ships with live cattle on them that they are sending hundreds of miles across the world. And pigs. To, yeah, to resupply the fleet. I mean, that is, if you think about the logistical operation, you know, in a world where everything is done on paper and handwritten on paper, just to organize all that, to have everything in place at the right time and for the ships to communicate with each other, for them to rendezvous at the right place yeah. at the right point. That takes an enormous amount of bureaucratic organization. I mean, you mentioned the dockyards. The dockyards themselves are like, they're like manufacturers, aren't they? Well, just to stick to the provisioning and, the, and also the cleanliness, because good provisions and washing down the ships are absolutely integrated. A healthy uh, crew on a ship is a well-fed crew. And really, that, that is a product of the 1780s. So the decade of defeat at the hands of the American rebels. But Britain, the Royal Navy comes out of that with a a very, very clear understanding that you win wars by having healthy, well-fed sailors. And so that's when they rumble the fact that if you eat lime, then you, you won't get scurvy. So uh, after the Battle of Nile, he comes back to Sicily, he's hanging out with uh, Lady Hamilton, all that kind of stuff. But uh, he's also busy setting up a contract to buy 30,000 gallons of lemon juice a year. And in 1804, the year before Trafalgar, you know, the guy who is provisioning his fleet is sourcing food as far away as South Russia. I can't remember which writer it is. I think it it might be Nelson's amazing biographer, John Sugden, I think it is, who says, Nelson's men at the Battle of Trafalgar were literally the healthiest Britons alive nam roger whose um a book the command of the ocean is a brilliant i mean it's the definitive history of the emergence of the royal navy and it obviously includes the nelsonian mm. period yeah and he's he goes on to say that that if you're looking at the victorian period and you want to identify the origins of public health movements and even the science of epidemiology then you look at the, the royal navy because this is 
where it's, you know, the, the British state has a stake in developing this. And what Roger also says, fascinatingly, is he, he cast Britain's dockyards entered the industrial age 100 years before the rest of the country. So that's kind of an amazing idea that yeah. Portsmouth and Plymouth and Chatham are these kind of centres for industrialisation long before it's starting to develop elsewhere in Britain, let alone the rest of Europe or the world. Well, when William Pitt the Elder, of course, becomes, you know, Earl of Chatham, I mean, that's a, a badge of modernity because the places like Chatham and Portsmouth, by the, certainly by the turn of the 19th century, I mean, effectively, is it not some people, N.A.M. Roger maybe talks about this as the world's first assembly line? Yeah, so that's a guy called Samuel Bentham. Is yeah. He's appointed the Inspector General of Naval Works in 1796. And he goes in to Portsmouth and he makes it essentially the most industrially sophisticated location in the entire world. So he builds vastly deeper docks that can take bigger ships. He is developing the use of steam engines to drain the docks, uh, to power machine, you know, sawmills and rolling mills and uh, all these kind of things. And you've got these block mills that are invented by Mark Brunel, who's the father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, uh, manufactured by a guy called Henry Maudsley. And amazingly, <laughs> so so these are these are. I think by historians of the Industrial Revolution cast as the world's first assembly line of machine tools. And amazingly, they, they only stopped working in 1983. So after the Falklands War. That's incredible. That's I mean, incredible. Un- unbelievable. And this is happening in, at the end of the 18th century. Yeah. In the age of bonnets. And, uh, yeah. and as we discovered in our fashion podcast, the age of the rise of the corset and the trouser, but also of the, uh, of the assembly line. So Tom, the parallel here, right? To sort of widen the picture out. The parallel here, you, you would argue, is with the role of the world wars in the 20th century in driving all kinds of development, but also the role, I suppose, of American defense spending in driving, you know, the rise of digital technology, the internet, all these kinds of things. Here is a perfect example of military technology driving social, cultural and economic change. Yes, uh, but but it's also about very small incremental changes. So British gunnery is not massively, you know, it's not revolutionary. It's not so far ahead, say, of French or Spanish gunnery as to be on on another planet. But there are incremental changes. So there's a a company called the Caron Company outside Glasgow that develops these new uh, guns called Caronades, which are very short range. So they can't come across. I can't believe I'm listening to you talking about gunnery, Tom, man. <laughs> but so, so the key there is that you have to get up close. And thanks to, to British rule in India, they now have access to much better saltpeter. Right. The French or the Spanish have. So it's about kind of 20%, perhaps more efficient. Again, I can't believe I'm coming out with all this stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... The relentless emphasis on discipline and practice. Well, that is key. It's the professionalisation, isn't it? Because yes. isn't the argument that we are going to get one day to the Battle of Trafalgar itself. But when we do, the key to it is not that the equipment is better or the ships are better. It is simply that the British, the Royal Navy, the men of the Royal Navy are an incredibly well-trained, professionalised fighting machine in yes. a way that their rivals just aren't. So on a French ship, the average is you can fire one broadside from your cannon yeah. every four minutes. Yeah. On a British ship, the best British ships, the most practiced British ships, you can get three broadsides in three minutes. Three in three minutes? Yeah. So in addition to that, you have carronades. So, so the British have carronades on all their ships. The French and Spanish don't. If yeah. you can get your ships up close, your guns are better, your gunpowder is better, and you can fire at a prodigiously faster rate, 
you're going to cause carnage. And that is absolutely key to understanding Nelson's strategy at Trafalgar and indeed more generally, is that you get up close and you blast the shit out of your out of your opponents. Right. That's a technical term. So that's just a technical to, nautical just term. To, just to leap ahead. I think there's a sense in which people don't appreciate that the consequences of all this that you're talking about, Tom. So to give you just a leap ahead to anticipate a second when we do get to the Battle of Trafalgar, on the day of the battle, the the victory they keep incredibly, I mean, this is a sign of the bureaucratization, they keep incredibly detailed records. And they record that they fired 4,243 round shot and 371 double-headed and grape shot, and they threw 4,000 musket balls at their opponents. So that's from one ship. So that gives you some sort of sense of just what a colossal enterprise, Yeah, equipping a ship, you know, equipping it, training the men to do it, and then actually what a horrific enterprise it is to yep. be out there fighting at close quarters. And to do that, you can only do that if you've got the state machine. So Pitt, that's why Pitt the Younger, I think to my mind, is clearly one of Britain's most effective war leaders and prime ministers in the whole sweep because he is brilliant at creating the financial machine through taxation and stuff that will fund this. This You used the phrase at the beginning of the podcast, total war. This is the spearhead of Britain's total war. Right. And so the fact that the ships of the Royal Navy are probably the best maintained objects anywhere on the planet. You know, that more care and love and attention is lavished on keeping them spruce, clean, well-equipped than anything, anything comparable anywhere. So these are absolutely key things. But there's also further dimensions, which is strategic and tactical. And I can't believe how much like my, yeah. my brother. I've, I was going to say, you're turning I, to your brother. I, I, I'm sounding because the Royal Navy hasn't just honed its ability to put these kind of killing machines out onto the waters. It's also developed techniques for how to, to use them to best effect. Yeah. So what they have worked out by basically the 1740s is that they need control of the channel. And that sounds so obvious, but they hadn't kind of worked that out up until the 1740s. Well, Britain had historically been abysmal at controlling yes. the channel. That's why people are always invading and crossing and all this sort of stuff. So by the 1740s, they've developed this thing called the Western Squadron, which is based along the south coast, so Portsmouth and Plymouth. And that enables Britain to maintain control, not just of the channel, but of the Western approaches into the channel. Yeah. And the great, Fre- you know, the, the French lack deep sea ports along their, along their channel coast. And basically, their naval base, uh, Brest, is around the kind of the headland of Brittany. So that's a problem for the French. Portsmouth and Plymouth are kind of excellent harbours for them. But what then happens over the course of the uh, of the 1780s and into the 1790s with the start of the, the Revolutionary Wars is a further streamlining of their kind of the strategic vision. And there are really two key figures before Nelson, and Nelson is a disciple of both of them. His kind of apprenticeship is served under both of them. The first one is a guy called Lord Hood. Hood's understanding is that the Navy, it's not enough just to control the Western approaches into the Channel. The geopolitical context is broader than that. And so he serves as commander of, of a fleet that's based in the Mediterranean. He seizes control of Toulon, the great naval base on the on the south of France. And although he gets thrown out of it by Napoleon, it's where, with grape shot, it's where Napoleon first makes his name. It's absolutely devastating for the French because while Hood is there, he destroys all the naval supplies that have been stored up there by French provisioners ready to build ships. And there's a case for saying perhaps that Trafalgar is won at Toulon Toulon when when Hood destroys all this stuff. And Hood understands that 
to be an effective fighting force, the Royal Navy has to exist in the broader geopolitical context. So an admiral has to be a diplomat, has to have this kind of sense that it's not just operating as a naval force, it's operating as a geopolitical force. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Nelson uh, absolutely absorbs that. The other guy who's, again, a big, big influence on Nelson is a man called John Jervis, who wins a great battle at Cape St. Vincent off Spain, just like Trafalgar is in 1797, where Nelson boards a ship. Uh, He's a captain. Well, the, Nelson was the first person to have led the first fifteen sixty or something, yeah, isn't it? to have led his men on, and that was one of the moments that absolutely turned him. We haven't really talked about Nelson, but turned him into a national hero. Yes, uh, and Jervis, who later becomes Earl Saint Vincent, named after his great victory. He's about two things, really. He's about he's the guy who's really into discipline. He's the guy who's who's interested in getting rid of all the kind of the remnants of of 18th century corruption, making the the navy disciplined, streamlined, focused. But he's also about giving his captains a sense of autonomy. That's crucial, isn't it? So what Jervis does is he says to his captains, "This is the plan. This is what we're going to do. But I trust you when we get into the battle." to know what I would want you to do. And that's what Nelson does. I was reading an article yesterday about the difference between the Ukrainian and Russian armies. And the the author said the Russian commanders, you know, it's all very top down. They have no initiative, whereas the Ukrainians have a NATO style command system where individual kind of commanders on the ground are told the general objective, but they they can use their initiative to try and achieve it. And I thought that's exactly the Royal Navy's position, Nelson's position with his captains at the turn of the 19th century. There's one other thing, actually, which I'm surprised you haven't mentioned, because you would love it, and I know you would. You will enjoy talking about it. So it's about the ethos of aggression. So the, the British, it seems to me that the Royal Navy has this ethos, a much more aggressive ethos than the French, and particularly the Spanish Navy, because they're obviously, their navies exist to protect their colonial trade, particularly Spain. I mean, that's why they have a navy, to protect the great treasure fleets and so on. And... The Royal Navy has always cultivated this sort of dash and 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 vigor and aggressiveness. Well, it hasn't always. Well, I was going to say the classic example is Admiral Bing, because yeah. Admiral Bing in 1756 uh, he had basically abandoned Minorca for not terribly inglorious reasons. He thought it was better to go back to Gibraltar and stuff, and he had famously been court-martialed and executed. Tom, I know you like Voltaire, don't you? You're a big Voltaire fan. Big Voltaire fan, yeah. And do you want to tell everybody what Voltaire said? Of course you do. Yeah, he says that the uh, in Candide that the English execute admirals to encourage the others, pour encourager les autres. And this is a kind of throwaway quip, but it's actually true. So yeah. N.A.M. Rogers in his great history basically says that it's <laughs> every British captain goes to see an admiral knowing that if they don't attack, if they're not aggressive, if they don't adopt a policy of kind of dramatic engagement, they face the yeah. risk of being executed on the deck of their own <laughs> ship. And yeah. this encourages a kind of incredible aggression in the Royal Navy that their opponents find increasingly intimidating. And the result is, is that French and, say, Spanish captains look at the Royal Navy and think, if we fight them, we're probably going to be defeated. It's a kind of implicit defeatism that is yeah. the result of decades and decades and decades, but gets very much sharpened by both Hood and Jervis, because on the tactical level, the fact that you have your enemy, you're a captain, you see an opportunity to attack them, you have to go in or else you're going to get executed. I mean, that obviously sharpens the minds of British captains. But on the broader sense, admirals with entire theatres of war, what's happened by the 1790s with um, Hood and Jervis is that they are recognising that Britain is involved in this total war. So we began the episode by talking about how it takes the British time to work out that they're in a total war. It's 
Hood and Jervis, who understand that, who recognise that if Britain is going to win, it's not enough just to play a defensive game. They have to go on the attack as well. Yeah. They have to cripple or, or hopefully destroy the French Navy. They've got to attack French trade links. They've got to try and do everything that they can to strangle and throttle the French economy. So both on the tactical and the strategic level, the Royal Navy, by the age of Nelson, is very, very aggressive. And Nelson is the absolute embodiment of that. He is the disciple of both Hood and Jervis, and his career stands as an absolute monument to these traditions of violent aggression and of absolute attention to detail. And those are the qualities that he will bring to the Trafalgar campaign. So, Tom, that is a, um, dare I say, it's the it's the beginning of a tour de force. It's not a tour de force completely, but it's the beginning of a tour de force. Now, if you were a member of the Rest is History Club, you're laughing. I mean, you're like a Royal Navy captain sailing into battle against the Spanish. There is a, a smile on your lips and, and laughter and death in your heart because you know that you can listen to the rest of this series right away. If you're not a member of the Rest is History Club, then frankly, you're not even a midshipman. You're what are you, Tom? I mean, you're you're part of the slush fund, basically. <laughs> so join the Rest is History Club. This is, you know, Britain was a commercial power in the 18th century. It's very important that we celebrate that, Tom. People should join the Rest is History Club. They'll be able to listen to all of this. Tom Holland will be speaking for hours and hours about <laughs> naval tactics and gunnery. I've seen his notes. He's, got, he's ready to go. He's going to do it. It's not even minute by minute. It's practically second by second. All sorts of excitement. If we're very lucky, he might do... You might sing, who knows? So join the rest of History Club forthwith. And on that bombshell, goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Restishistorypod.com.